Welcome to this week's episode of the Back to Back Films Podcast. This week we'll be covering Alfred Hitchcock's Rope and Alfonso Cuarón's Children of Men, discussing the long take, one of those techniques that everyone wants to gush about. I'm your host, Keith. And I am Byron Gouet. And I'm Jacob Foltz. How are you guys doing this evening? Doing good. Yeah, can't wait. Yeah, yeah doing Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, these are really interesting movies, so it's going to be a discussion, I think, that's going to be pretty fruitful. I think so, too. I actually uh, watched both of these movies today because, <laughs> uh, you know, procrastination and um, stuff. But actually, you know, I, I don't regret it because, it, you know, it's fresh in my mind, and uh, I think that it'll be helpful to, you know, because I just watched them. So what was the experience watching the two movies back-to-back? Like, how did that feel? It felt pretty good. Um, I watched Rope first, and I hadn't seen Rope before. But watching kind of the older one first, I think, kind of prepped me for the new one, uh, which is Children of Men, which Children of Men isn't the same type of long takes as as Rope is. Uh, Damn it, I just ummed. I would say Birdman is closer to like what rope is attempting to be uh fuck (laughs) it keeps saying um (laughs) we'll actually get into how similar children of men and rope are when it comes to their long takes because uh children of men tries to do some things that are like you know they're not necessarily genuine long takes you know so but uh it's interesting I think it was a good decision to watch Rope first because it's like, it's a lot slower. You know, there's no, it's all in one place and it's all about the character interaction as opposed to having a bunch of stuff happening around the characters. Children of Men, you know, lots of explosions and just the camera's always going, the characters are always moving, they're always going somewhere. So I think, you know, in that regard, I think Rope probably better to watch if, if you're going to watch them in a back-to-back scenario i think rope is definitely the better one to watch first um so yeah so our main topic for the week is the long take uh so a long take is any shot in a film that extends for longer than the usual editing pace of the film so what that means is that when you're watching a movie generally you can get a idea or sense of how many edits there are, how quickly the editing is, how fast the film is. We all know what a slow film is uh, when you're kind of feeling like there's no action and you're pretty bored. Um, God dang, I'm doing it too. Uh, so <laughs> so hard. No, it is, it really is. Uh, there's no specific time length that makes a take long, uh, but you can generally tell when a long take is occurring you know, it usually is about from a couple of minutes, you know, maybe a minute uh, as long as the entire film. Um, Goodfellas is a good example of a pretty. Uh, what is Goodfellas? It's like three or four minutes. Right? I want to say it's like a little. It's right about three minutes. I yeah, think. something like yeah. that. Then you have other films like Russian Arc or Victoria where the long take is 90 minutes. And and in the case of Victoria, it's actually just over two hours, I believe. Uh, One single take with no edits. Why didn't we watch that? Why didn't we watch uh, Victoria? 
Fuck. We're going to discuss those separately. Oh, got it. Um, just having a specific one, you know, one long take. Uh, I feel like there's a lot to discuss, and I haven't seen Russian Ark, so I'd like to watch that one too. I actually haven't seen both of them. I think that's a yeah, good they're, they're both, a good topic. Really good, are they? Yeah, Victoria is nuts. It's, it's, a, it's a slow burn, but when you get, you know, after about 45 minutes, you're you're hooked. You're hooked. <laughs> is that is that a one where we'll do like a single take movie? And and that'll be the topic because that's exactly like where it's actually a single tape because because rope isn't really exactly. a single tape and neither is children of men yes so yep. so yeah I I wanted to separate those out and discuss those separately because it is a very special thing and really really rare to have a film that isn't actually one take and in the case of Russian Ark I'm not exactly sure they must have they couldn't have done it on film. Gosh, that's a good question. I used to know this. Um, I want to say that they did use a digital camera for it. They'd have it's to. It's like a, some sort of Sony, because this was like, what, mid two thousand, early 2000s? Yeah, it was something along those lines. Yeah, so they would have to have used a digital camera. So that's an interesting discussion in and of itself, how the digital cameras have affected the long take. Yeah, because they, they couldn't really do that before, right? Like, they had... Like, because of the film stock, it could only d- get, like, a certain length in there, unless you get exactly. a s- stupid, ridiculous, like, thing going on. Exactly, which is why rope is what it is, because they only had 10 minutes of film per reel. So he was only, he, you know, there's, um, I believe there's 9 to 10 cuts in the film, uh, where he, it's, it's the part where he pans into the people's backs is where he hides his edits. So the film runs, I think, 80 minutes. 80 minutes, yeah. Yeah, and there's actually a cut in there that you can see when it cuts to Jack uh. Stewart. And then there's also the cut at the very beginning. When, so it does the intro shot, and then it cuts into right. the uh, two guys strangling. I heard, I heard like weird things about the intro sh- cut. Because like, I guess some people count it, and some people don't. And they I guess some people that don't count it, they count it as the same type of cut that starts the end sequence the, the end credit sequence oh interesting so oh. they don't they don't count it they're like that's the title sequence so it doesn't count as part of the actual like storyline so I find that interesting but some people count it some people don't but either way I think it's still you know impressive that it's only you know that amount of cuts <laughs> yeah totally right. and well what's fascinating about the intro is that that's where Hitchcock decided to have his cameo because he has a cameo in all of his movies, and that's he's just one of the guys walking down the street in that one. Uh, yeah, and initially he wanted his cameo to be a neon sign in the background. It was going to be a profile picture of him that you could see through the window uh, in the, of the set, and it was like a red neon sign. And I think he had it in there for like a little bit, but then they took it out because it was too like. Uh, it was drawing people away from the story. It was like, like too goofy. Idea, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how else do you fit yourself into a, you know, a one setting thing without actually being a character? Yeah, it's weird. I guess he also shot like another scene that's only in the trailer. Oh, and it's okay. not in the yeah. movie. Yeah. So yeah, that trailer. Only, he could have been in that too, but I guess it, will, it wouldn't have really counted. <laughs> no, people wouldn't have counted it for sure. He's kind of... I don't know, narcissistic like that, where he yeah. has to be in there. <laughs> yeah, right. He's kind of a weird guy, for sure. He, yeah, he's odd. Off topic, but he like got his belly button removed. 
What? Really? Yeah, he what? had a thing against belly buttons. That's relevant. Let's talk about that. <laughs> that's the weirdest thing I've ever that's heard. Super honest. fascinating. How that's does... really weird. Wow. That is nuts. I can't... I, I don't even know what to say to that because it's just so... Yeah. I, why, why did he do that? Sure. He had a thing... He had, like, this weird... I, I don't know. This This, like, he was... He just found them gross. It's kind of funny that he, he like, it's funny that he was so paranoid about his own belly button wow. and not, like, his wife's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? I, mean, I guess they are kind of gross. He must have had an innie, I think, because, like, really, Audis aren't that gross. I mean, Audis are weird, you know? But yeah. really, innies are gross because of all the chunks that get inside of them, you know, lint. And they just all the little crusties, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, they kind of smell. Yeah, and they they do smell <laughs> they do smell yeah, yeah. over time because shake it's man it's like sweat it's like crusty it's sweat this it's sounds like a Cronenberg film <laughs> yeah. I don't know of body horror that's that's weird but I guess I get it but that's a, that's a really odd fun fact Ho- yeah, hopefully that comes up in trivia sometime because that's awesome <laughs> I bet that there is like a bunch of weird facts about Hitchcock because he was kind of a weird dude yeah like he I mean he like had these weird, you know, things with his leading ladies and stuff like that and weird um, obsessions and stuff. And his wife put up with it. It's, it's an interesting, yeah, interesting dynamic. He seemed like he was a little creepy. Yeah. I, he, he does he seem creepy. <laughs> but still, a brilliant, brilliant artist. Yeah. Sure. He's definitely one of those people, kind of like Roman Polanski, where you, uh, yeah. it's that argument where do we separate the artist from their art because sometimes the artist is, you know, fucked up. Yeah, the whole Polanski yeah. thing, I still don't even know how I feel about that. Because there's, like, there's so many... I've heard so many things on both sides. I mean, even the late the girl, like, she, at some point, even, like, said that she, you know, partly lied on some of the stuff or whatever, mm. you know? And, and then, like, God. it goes back and forth, so it's really, it's, it's really weird. It's so, <laughs> I still like... I don't really know. It's so just fucked up, just the whole thing that happened to him. Because, I mean, even even if he did that, like, his family got murdered. And the, you know, portrayal of the media on that story is totally screwed up. And oh, it's it's really bad. But ultimately, he may have done this horrible, horrible, horrible thing that no one should ever do. And he got kicked out of the country for it. Yet he was still at the Academy Awards for the pianist afterwards, so it's you know he wasn't he wasn't there though. I mean, like not or his. I'm sorry. I meant I meant yeah. his movie was there. Right, right. His right. movie was there for it. Yeah. So it's you know, ultimately, I think it's like you made a movie and that's it, and it's about the movie. Um, but I I can totally understand if people want to boycott a filmmaker because of you know. It, any sort of problem that they had, you, you know what I mean? That they believe yeah, they do him to something have. That's extremely vulgar. That's yeah. yeah I mean, because like that's here. like seriously. Like if he did do it, that's like one of the worst things he could do. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, totally. Like, it's up so there. it's like man, <laughs> oh man, totally. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a weird topic for sure. It's weird. Yeah, the artists and their demons and stuff versus their art. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. We could do one about that too. We could totally we do that. We could, we could watch some Polanski and 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 do it. You know what I mean? I, I'm a huge. The funny thing is, I'm a huge Polanski fan. I love his films. Like they're they're, they're the type of films too that I can watch over and over again. He, oh. He's so. His films are like, 
the way they're shot are almost perfect. What are, what are your favorite? Would you like uh, Chinatown or Rosemary's? What do you like? I love Chinatown. I love the Tenant, and he actually that. stars in one. it too. He directs it and uh, stars in it. It's, oh, really? That's really good. It has uh, Isabella Johnny in it. Um, it's a fantastic thriller, psychological thriller. It's really cool. <laughs> I want to see. Um, is it like ph- phenomenon or something? Is that what it's called? Oh, phen. Phenomena? Phenomena. Maybe that's what it's called. Do, do, that really do, do, do. I don't think, but did Blonsky... <laughs> Didn't he direct that one? Gosh. I want to say Dario Argento had something to do with that one. Oh, maybe it wasn't. Maybe I'm thinking... I think it was that, that... That's the one with, like, Dario Argento and uh, uh, George Romero did something together, Oh, I think. okay. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong I thing. don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've... <sighs> I think The Pianist is a really good movie. Me too. It's really emotionally distressing. Yep. But I think Rosemary's Baby is the most overrated piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. And I can't figure out why it is so acclaimed. It's awesome. Really? That's so funny because like, but like, but there's, there was no other film like it. In the 60s. Which makes sense. I mean, like, yeah, in, in a historical context, I could see like, it's like The Exorcist, you know, like there's nothing really like The Exorcist before it. So when it appeared on screen, I imagine that it was, you know, pretty shocking. Right. Right. But it's still heralded even today as like some crazy, scary movie. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe I got to rewatch it. But when I first watched it, I just was, I was not a fan. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the things about it is that people walked out of the theater saying things like, I can't believe the look of the like the eyes of the baby, but there's no shot of the baby in the movie. Like there's no shot of the baby's eyes. So it's like this weird tone that no one had ever, I assume I'm speculating here. No one had ever experienced before. And it totally like got into people's heads and made them picture things that weren't even in the movie at all, which is very fascinating, which is funny because Hitchcock, you know, a psycho did the same thing where people actually thought they saw the knife enter you know Vivian Lay or Janet Lay's or Lee's uh, uh, torso, but there's actually no cut. You know, there's no cut where the knife is actually penetrating skin. Right. But it, it he edited it in a way where people actually left the theater thinking that that they saw something that they didn't. It's interesting how because the editing how, was so fast for that yeah. scene. Yeah, it was yeah, so, so fast, cool. so cool. Yeah, so that's an interesting scene in. I mean, I feel like we definitely have to cover Psycho at some point just because of the narrative structure alone, which was really weird for its time. And actually, it, it took him a long time to get Psycho made. Uh, there was no faith in that movie at all when he was shopping it around. And now, obviously, it's considered you know, classic. You know, it, probably Hitchcock. Yeah, before. one of the best movies he's made, according it's, to a lot of people. It's interesting, too, that both Rope and Psycho kind of follow the killers in yep. a way which is also kind of unique especially for 1948 for rope and then you know he goes 1960 quite a few years later and he goes black and white on this on, on psycho but rope was his first color film rope was yeah. but they were both about kind of you know following these killers I, it's kind of interesting <laughs> wonder if he realized how much of a pain in the ass color film cameras are when they first came out because they're like these ginormous huge cameras that that are just horrible for production um, well that's 
Well, well, because uh, on the Blu-ray there was an interesting behind-the-scenes documentary that showed some of the technology they were using, and the fact that that giant camera moves around too is something that made the production of that movie just way harder than it needed to be. If it, you know, if he would have just shot it in black and white. Gosh, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. Rope was made in 1948. Uh, the film stars James Stewart, John Dahl, Farley Granger, and Joan Chandler. Uh, it was produced by Hitchcock and Sidney Bernstein. Cinematography was by Joseph Valentine and William Skull. So that tells you right there. How often is cinematography done by two people? Is, you know, how, how often do you have two people credited for that? That just shows you how extensive that whole process was. Do we know why there's there's two or like did one of them quit or you know do we know did you guys uh, find that out my assumption is that it was just so technologically advanced that they needed multiple people to get to get it made yeah that makes the sense camera the camera you know it's 48 so a lot of that technology is fairly new there's a lot of moving shots tracking shots um, talk about a little bit later too, like how the set was designed to accommodate this gigantic camera and how the actors had to just accommodate the camera and how everything kind of was just about the camera. That was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't find anything specific about that, but it is also possible too, that maybe one of them did quit halfway through. It was a pretty intense shoot. So it was edited by William Ziegler, or Ziegler, not sure exactly how to pronounce that, and music was directed, so this is interesting too, music was directed by Leo Forbstein, so it wasn't composed, it was directed, and I'm not exactly sure what that means, probably should look that up. You know, it's funny, because I know in a lot of Italian films, um, they had... You know, like Ennio Morricone would do the soundtrack, but then they would have other um, artists that would orchestrate it or conduct it. Mm-hmm. And then, like in the so in the in the film, it was you know music by Ennio Morricone and then conducted by you know so and so. In fact, Ennio Morricone actually used one guy quite a bit, so they were kind of like a pair. But it is yeah, it's, I wonder why. They chose directed by instead of conducted. If that's the same thing, it's a good question. I'm not sure. Or even composed. Yeah. Yeah, I think if if one of our listeners knows the answer to the question, write into our email address that Keith will say out loud right now. Btbpodcast at gmail dot com. Yeah. So if you have send in, if you know the answer to that question, go ahead and send us in. We'll read it out loud on the show on the next show. And, and tell us we're dumb. Be like, you guys, this is incredibly obvious. And a quick Google search found the answer. So way to go. Oh, so did you Google it? Oh, no, no, no. I said that that's what the listener should say oh, when yeah. they write in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a learning experience for us, too. Like, So we're trying to do our own research and learn things. And, I mean, we can't catch everything. you know. So it, th- that'd be interesting, though, to get an answer to that question for sure. And Jacob will give you $10,000. <laughs> yeah, it'll be uh, colored money like Monopoly. It'll be two uh, 500s. Oh, no, 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 2,500s. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be awesome. You'll love it. I'll mail it to you. It'll be great. Two envelopes. Uh, so, so like we said, the film takes place entirely on a single set besides the opening intro shot, which 
was actually on location on top of a building. Uh, it was shot at Warner Brothers Studio in L.A., and it had a budget of approximately $1.5 million, which is really interesting considering it is, you know, I, I imagine he spent most of that money on crew and technology. I, I heard that James Stewart's um, was $300,000 of that $1.5 Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. That is a so lot he, of dollars. It was a pretty big chunk considering, too, that he was only in the movie after 30 minutes right you know? <laughs> and it's funny because critically speaking people thought it was weird that he was in the movie yep like he was not i think carrie grant was the initial yeah you're right person and then um there might have been someone else uh after that but then jay it landed on james stewart and obviously hitchcock's worked extensively with grant and stewart on various films right and rear window North by Northwest, stuff like that. Um, I think North by Northwest. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think that was... It wasn't James Stewart, for sure. No, it was but Grant, it, right? Yeah, I think, I think sure. so. That's actually one Hitchcock film I haven't seen. Oh, yeah? Which is weird. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting, too, that they do that meta talk about Cary Grant in the movie. I love that. Yeah. And James Mason and mm-hmm. stuff. I was like, what? I was like, I was almost... When I was listening to it, I was almost like... Is he like meta talking about his own movies right now? I'm like, yeah. It was, it was so bizarre. The conversation was kind of like out of place. Yeah, it was really cool, and it was funny too because like like uh, the lady the lady who played um, what's her name was it Janet in the movie? Uh, well, the the, the young woman you're talking about Joan Chandler. That's her real name, but I can't I can't think yeah. of what. Her yeah, name you're was. talking about the love interest who uh, David's loving the love. Yeah, yeah soon-to-be wife was, sort of a and thing. And that was, like, her second and final film. Wow, and, random. And then, and huh. then the, guy, the guy who played David, who, you know, gets killed at the beginning, that was his last film as well. So it's funny, like, <laughs> there's, there's, like, these, these people that snuff are, like, film. like, in the film, and they're talking about famous actors, but they themselves never really became never famous. Off, yeah. It's kind of interesting. That is interesting. Is it, so David was in the trailer for it, at, like he had lines and stuff, but then in the movie he just screams, and you could maybe even speculate that that's not even his scream. They just added it in, you know. So he, he might just be a dead body that just dies at the beginning, and and then that's <laughs> and then that's it. So it's and kind of uh, you know. It was almost the case that he wasn't on screen actually. Right. Yeah. Because uh, Arthur Lawrence said, I think when they originally wrote the script. It, they had that death happen. It the film would have started with them looking like they were putting something into a box or closing the box, so that it was left ambiguous as to whether or not they actually killed someone. And Arthur Lawrence was like, in an interview, he was like, "Yeah, I think that was Hitchcock actually being afraid, and uh, he was too afraid to go that far, and so played it safe." And showed the murder happening right at the beginning, which is really Arthur Lorenz's interview on the doc on the Blu-ray is fascinating because he like respects Hitchcock, but he was like honest. He tear about, he tears him apart, man. Yeah, like yeah, he, he respects him, but it's like whoa, like yeah. If someone did that nowadays, you know, like in a, exactly. if, if Hitchcock was still alive. Uh, no more work for that guy with Hitchcock. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. For sure. And then especially his discussion, which I want to talk about more extensively a little later too, is uh, 
how he states that there's a lot of homosexual undertones. Love that. Love yeah. it. So he, the the screenwriter himself, says that there are these, that they exist, and that, you know, it's part of the movie, but Hitchcock and probably the studio as well, because he was saying that uh, they referred to being gay as it. They didn't even say it. So they just said, you're it. And right. like they, no Monty one was Python. okay. That's one of the reasons why James Stewart... Uh, was in this and a lot of other actors passed was because they didn't want to be at all connected to being it because James Stewart's character was actually supposed to be uh, like op- like obviously homosexual which yeah. may or may not have played into the two ma- other to uh, Brandon and Philip and might have been some connection in their past uh, but also might have played into the kind of obvious sexual undertones to Brandon and Philip's relationship as well. Maybe he was so distraught at the end because he was in love with David. No, no, yeah. I mean, it's it's not something that's completely far fetched, you know, because they pulled so much out that you don't exactly know where the line would have been with that. But that's one of the reasons why a lot of people passed on the part two, mm-hmm. uh, just because of the because it was it was a stage play before. So right, exactly. and that had the gay undertones and like every even though they didn't say it explicitly it was still like this exactly. is about gayness. And so, when they when they um why can't I think of the term? When they converted the script uh what? Fire's <laughs> just laughing his ass off. What the What is so funny? <laughs> Jacob's comment about gayness. <laughs> What are you, 12? So <laughs> You're like 12 years old? Yeah. Gay, gay is funny. It's a funny word. Oh, Here we go. Fifth grade. Okay. So when they were writing the screenplay based off the play, Jesus. they were trying to keep the screenplay a play. That's why it's in one location. There's a lot of mm-hmm. character interaction. There's a lot of talking. And there's a reason why, because Hitchcock wanted to feel like a play. And, you know, one of the things they wanted to try to do was keep those those undertones as part of the film and obviously they they're there because you could tell yeah i mean but it definitely lots of lots of it was cut out yeah they took out a lot of the lines and didn't they add in that james stewart was their teacher or was that part of the original play too do you guys know the answer to that i'm not i'm actually not sure i'm not really sure because i do want to say that there they did do quite a few changes to the characters because i i know I thought I read somewhere that, yeah, James Stewart's character wasn't in the original play. That that was a complete... Actually, I think that's right. Yeah, like, that that was a complete addition that Hitchcock made. Um, So I'm not, yeah. That's that's fascinating, because that is the movie. Like, without uh, Jimmy Stewart, there's no movie, really. It's almost like, it's like, well, let's add a character that's going to figure it all out and have a star in it and that may you know maybe that will draw an audience because i don't know at that time how many people would actually be interested in wanting to see a film that maybe didn't have big names because i mean those two guys and the lady aren't weren't big names Mm-mm. so the only draw in was really james stewart i mean in reality a lot of people don't go to see movies that don't have big name people in them even today so yeah i mean yeah. especially back then i mean that you know 1948 i mean that's like 
right before the 50s where the 50s was really when you know yeah the the, the big stars yeah. became you know where the paparazzi became even more of a of a a popular thing you know in, in la and stuff i don't know yeah definitely and uh yeah so hitch uh so rope is interesting because when you search for the long take it's basically the first film that comes up as being the first one to really try and tackle this and yeah to be honest i can't think of any directors besides hitchcock who could have even attempted it really and it was mainly an experiment for hitchcock too to really see whether or not a film could maintain its tension and thrills with long takes do you guys think it was successful in in maintaining that throughout um you know i think when i when i was watching it it did seem kind of gimmicky um at the same time there were parts of the movie where i wasn't really aware that you know i wasn't like actively looking for the next cut right um but there were parts where it did seem like it was kind of a gimmick. But it's so funny because, I mean, Hitchcock was such a master that it's kind of hard for me to say that. But I, I honestly, I did feel like it was kind of gimmicky. But maybe if I hadn't have known that it was a film that was first, you know, you know, uh, that was trying to do something like, you know, making it look like one take, I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't have picked up on that. Um, I definitely agree, though. I think I found it definitely partway through it sort of started to feel gimmicky because when you have a long take in a movie there really has to be a point to it and usually the point is that you're trying to express something in real time and ratchet up the tension because things are happening to the character in a in a you know in a time sense that you, you can really understand because you're there with the character for however many minutes the long take is um that I'm trying to think. Well, Alfonso Cuarón says that in an interview as well. That's part of the point why they shot Children of Men as they did because he wanted to express that feeling of things happening in real time for the most part, right? And uh, that's why the long take in True Detective is such an interesting long take too, because there's a whole lot of crap that happens in that period of time. And you're with him the whole time. You know what I mean? So it's like you're there to experience him going into these houses, trying to get away, trying to hide, taking down these people and, you know, knocking them out and stuff like that. Man, for me, that was the best TV moment I've probably had, like, ever seen. Yeah. Like, that was was amazing. True Detective, I'm a complete, like, groupie (laughs) for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting to, one to talk about though uh with the steady cam episodes that are coming up because oh yeah that's that, good that would be sick because that's really and then children of men obviously i mean mm-hmm. actually children of men is a little bit different because a lot of it wasn't steady cam so that was interesting and part of the steady cam and its power is its ability to open up the long take in so many different movies so yeah uh, definitely going to be in that because we're going to do a two-parter for that so we'll be covering 
the first films to utilize a steady cam, and then in the second part we'll talk about the different long takes that were created out of the steady cam, you know, such as Goodfellas. That means we get to talk about The Shining. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yes. The Excellent. Shining. The first part is The Shining, Bound for Glory, Marathon Man. Uh, there's one more that I can't think of off the top of my head for some reason, and then surprisingly, Return of the Jedi. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so that'll be an interesting episode. Uh, ha- that's a little bit further off, but it'll be interesting. Have you guys seen the Shining trailer recut to be a romantic comedy? Yeah, yeah that I was have. awesome. I yeah. love that. It's it's awesome. It's, it's amazing. Like a Goldie, and then they, it was like a Goldie Hawn romantic comedy, right? And then they put yep. the Shining music to that. And that was, yeah, that, that's trippy too. <laughs> Freaking awesome. What a trip. Yep. All right, let me see here. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> the other thing, too, that we talked about kind of in the last episode <laughs> was my distaste generally for ratings below R. And this yeah. movie is PG, but that's also because 1948 ratings were a bit different than uh, the ratings we have now. So, Because the movie is actually, you know... They explicitly show him being strangled right off the bat. Yep. Which is pretty open for 1948. And the movie actually has a lot of black comedy in it. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that Brandon says throughout the film, these little jibes of, oh, I know that there's a body in there. And, you know, this whole uh, sequence where James Stewart is telling, uh, talking to people about how murder is kind of okay and him agreeing and then being mm-hmm. like, yeah, we should totally kill off, you know, the inferior people. Like, And then bringing Hitler into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah three that's years, right. Three years after World War Ooh. II ended. Oh, man. Jeez. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting just for 1948. Uh, you know, it's like, it's an interesting precursor to Psycho in the sense that Psycho was pushing boundaries with the things that it showed on screen and the violence that it showed. And here he is, you know, 12 years earlier throwing out just all sorts of absurd I mean I feel like people who were in the theaters had to have been like <gasps> you know like yeah like whoa and... what's that oh uh, I I was just yeah, I think I agree people would be really surprised by all the double entendres that were kind of going on and all the kind of little one liners that the little jabs and stuff like that Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I to- um, I actually really enjoyed the double entendres because I think without it, I was getting kind of like the, the the camera movement and stuff was getting repetitive for me. Totally. Like I, I felt like because it just took place in that one spot, I, that one room, which I don't really have a problem with that, but it it was getting a little at points, a little stale. So with you know with the having the the interesting dialogue and the banter back and forth, you know the dark the dark comedy it made it a little bit more enjoyable <laughs> i definitely agree and so it's actually interesting we should talk about the camera movement because can, can we can we hold on that subject for a second um because sure. i i wanted to say i also i also felt like it was getting stale and i think the double entendres helped a lot but i also i honestly think that knowing that they killed david was kind of what made it stale. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't enough to just have the main idea of the movie be about 
whether or not they are going to get caught or not. Because really, that's what you're watching it for is are these two dudes going to get caught or are they going to get away with it? But as the screenwriter pointed out, he thought it'd be more interesting if it was, did they actually do it? And I, I think that's more fascinating, you know? And I think if they were to set it up that way, it would obviously, they would have to rewrite like a good chunk of the movie because there would be scenes that would just give it away. You know what I mean? But ultimately I think that'd be a more interesting movie. It is all in one location, which can get stale, but I think ultimately it was like the idea of, are they going to get away with it? That kind of died for me. Um, and it took kind of too long to pay off, even though the movie's only 80 minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I am actually, I agree with you 100% on that. (laughs) So it's, um, I don't know if you guys noticed this. Well, so Hitchcock was really known for his blocking and how actors move through space. Um, I believe it's it's Vertigo where he's talking to the the harbor master, and there's a really interesting video out online where uh, the the person who made the video breaks down. Uh, how the how the actors move in the scene, and how Hitchcock stages certain actors above the others on certain lines. So when the harbor master is, oh, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie, so I, I don't want to speculate too much exactly what he said. But there's there's sequences where the harbor master goes up some flights of stairs to stand kind of above James Stewart. And then there's sequences where they're kind of both sitting on the desk. It's a little more chill. And it all depends on when they're talking about uh, the guy's wife or not. So it's a really interesting breakdown to see how Hitchcock plays with space. And in Rope, you can really see this... It's kind of an odd use of space, actually. Because he puts the actors so close together. Yeah. Which is, first of all, one of the reasons why I noticed you get that feeling of those undertones, those homosexual undertones, because like right in the beginning when he's kind of like, he's, uh, Brandon has this, the way he talks is like, he just like, they just got done having sex and he's kind of like on his high. Right. And <laughs> this is interesting to talk about with, um, Refin later on because he makes allusions to sex and violence and how they're kind of the, the, feelings and the thrills are kind of the same but uh, anyway yeah so he's he's got this way of talking where he's really excited and the other guy is he's the um philip is the guy who's like man i really feel like we shouldn't have done this who's automatically regretting the decisions that he right made, right like he's so in a sense he's so far into the closet that he's so uncomfortable with even himself as who he is right and yeah. then they walk across the room into the kitchen and this whole time they're like you know they're shoulder to shoulder this the screen hitchcock keeps the camera really close and in the four by three aspect ratio everything kind of feels a little bit tighter anyway so the two characters are almost always touching and so they go to the they go to the kitchen and they get a drink and i believe it's champagne but the way that the scene kind of plays out they almost show the drink as sort of this effeminate thing Right, they sort of drink mm. the, the glasses they drink it out of, what they're drinking, how they kind of 
you know, it's, it's, they're kind of drinking to what they've done almost too. You know, it's like, and like even the maid says, "Oh, I didn't know it was going to be that type of party." Oh, in reference yeah. to the champagne, oh. which is too. And she was all giggly, and then she was pushing her hair, you know, up, you know, closer to her head, That's making sure that point. she was looking good, and she was looking at Philip and the other guy, you know, like kind of almost as a, like approval, like, "Do yeah. I look good?" You know. That's a good point. It's a really good point, and that adds to the your double entendre state, double entendre statement. Uh, so yeah, it's and then when you notice, so they have this moment together right after what they've done. There's kind of that, I don't know, afterglow, if you will, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, guests start showing up, and they kind of trickle in, so you can kind of be introduced to them and whatnot. And I, I believe you're introduced to. Um, can't remember the blonde guy's name. Uh, hit the the woman's old lover, essentially, and uh, Brandon and Philip kind of like, especially Brandon because Brandon's the one who's very arrogant and everything, right? He stays really close to him as well. And as the actors keep coming in, as the guest keeps com- coming in, the way Hitchcock blocks them is that they're always. They're never more than like a foot or two apart from each other. All His the name time. is uh, Kenneth, by the way. Kenneth. Kenneth. Okay. That's the blonde guy. Yep. Okay. And I think this blocking is most obvious when they're sitting on the couch. And for some reason, they're all scrunched together on the couch. <laughs> and the professor is sitting there with his plate and his legs are just pushed together. And he's pushed between his... Uh, uh, who was she? She was... Um, like it's, it wasn't a secretary or something. It was, it was the maid. It wasn't. No, it wasn't the maid. It was he. He didn't bring his wife to the party. He brought um, his uh, David's aunt. Is, yeah. Is that yes? Yes. Yes. Because they're, they're they're his sister. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because his David's aunt. He's David's uncle, and his aunt didn't come to the party. That's right. He's, exactly. He's David's father. Wow. I feel bad because I'm getting so many of these facts wrong. Okay. I have it right in front no, of me. You're right. Uh, I would be doing his mother worse than you. That's right. Yeah. His mom. So, it, yeah. it, so he brought his sister, David's aunt. Yes, exactly. Yeah, David's yeah, aunt exactly. is there. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, and Brandon is sitting on his right, and then, excuse me, the aunt is sitting on his left, or on his right, spatially speak, whatever. And then you have James Stewart and... Uh, what is her name in the film now? Oh, uh, Joan? Yeah. Oh, Janet. Janet. So yep. you have Janet, and then you have James Stewart's character sitting there as well. So they're all crammed together to tell this ridiculous, you know, sentiment that James Stewart has about you know, we should be able to... Murder is totally okay, basically, and he gives these reasons why, and then Brandon takes it a step further with, well, I'm superior, and... He's inferior, so I should have the right to, to take his life, right? And for the rest of the time, I mean, even though the camera moves back and forth and the actors move around the room, you know, uh, Janet and Kenneth stay really close together because he's kind of, like, wanting to get back at that. And, like, you know, Philip is kind of always around and Brandon's trying to keep close to people, giving them all these different stories, so that his lives can eventually unfold. And they're just like, and then you, it's just, it's weird because it's like, 
I don't know if you guys got this feeling or not, but I didn't get a feeling of being claustrophobic, even though everything was so smashed together. Mm-hmm. And even when uh, James Stewart is like pushing in on Philip when Philip is at the piano and he's kind of leaning on the piano and he's kind of leaning forward at him to try and egg him on and push him and push him and push him. There's still like, I don't know. It, literally speaking, Philip is being backed into a corner, right? He's in the corner of the room. But I still didn't get this feeling of, like, claustrophobia or, like, being in Philip's shoes. And I, I wonder if that's because because of the long takes and the way that, like, he shot the film. I don't know. Maybe. I Yeah, I didn't feel claustrophobic at all watching this movie. And I, apparently the set was pretty small, wasn't it? Like it was a pretty... Set was super small. Yeah, it was yeah. a pretty sm- surprisingly small area that they're in. And I wonder if it didn't feel that way because of the long take. Maybe That's the, what I'm thinking. You know what I mean? Like because they kind of held on stuff, like it, it felt smaller. Or it, it didn't feel as small. But I, I think, think it was... They made it small because they were trying to imitate the play. Because that was originally why they were shooting it in a long take, like, continuously. Anyways, it's because they wanted it to feel like a play. Exactly. So I'm probably curious. You know, it was probably easier for them to move the camera if it was a smaller area, right? Because those, those cameras too. at the time were probably so heavy and they didn't have, like, the, the crazy techno cranes and stuff that they have now where they could do, you know, cooler, you know, movements um, and stuff. But yeah, and I and I think yeah, you guys are right. I think that's why it seems kind of gimmicky, because mm-hmm. yeah, it like it it doesn't it it just yeah it becomes stale, and you're also watching um, these actors that are kind of you know not realistically um, acting in a realistic proximity to one another. Exactly. Which actually, you know, looking back though, you know, maybe in the 1940s. Um, audiences uh, totally overlooked it. They could have, because um, I know you know we as viewers um, now don't forgive as much as audiences back then did. So that it, it might be something that they totally overlooked. But looking at it now, you know, we might be over analyzing something that maybe Hitchcock didn't even think about. Right, and I yeah. mean, the novelty of the long take and what was happening was probably so much to the forefront that you're right. A lot of audiences would have, you know, skipped over a lot of that and, stuff. And I think Hitchcock even admitted later, I think to, to Truffaut, um, I believe that uh, he basically admitted that that film was kind of gimmicky. And hmm. James Stewart oh, also said that it was the worst film that he did with um, <laughs> Hitchcock and that he was totally miscast for it. Oh, yeah. Which That's is so great. funny because, you know, he got he 300000 bucks for it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I just took my money and, and uh, then complained about it later. Well, yeah. and the movie underperformed a lot. And, I'm uh, like, it, it only received, like, $2.2 million back. So it didn't, like, do that well compared to Gosh. Hitchcock's other work. And yeah, I'm curious if that. that's because of the gay undertones that were that's in the possibility. movie. That's actually, yeah, because I, I know that they did ban the film in quite a few cities. Oh, did they um, really? Yeah, uh, hmm. I guess, like, I, you know, I think there were, like, Miami and a whole bunch of other cities, like, banned it because of the, the sexual undertones, which is interesting, too. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, no, that's fascinating. And it makes sense. I mean, that is the the time that, you know, in the 19 f- late 1940s, you know, it wasn't kosher to be gay. You know what I mean? So Right, yeah. It's like here's a movie with gay undertones where honestly, if this movie comes out today, I th- I think it could do well. Honestly. Like I think a movie with long takes like this that's done in a modern way that has gay characters that are um you know trying to that are that aren't doing gay stereotypical things stereotypically gay things they're kind of doing a murder and talking about that but there's a little hint of gayness there i feel like that movie could do well um it, with its long takes and stuff especially after something like birdman coming out where it has all long takes and la la land which is prides itself in its long takes like how children of men did um it's, it's- it's kind of unfortunate though because i feel that like it could do well or critics or audiences will just be like oh the directors are trying to say that homosexuals are bad and that they're all murderers and stuff because i know people will totally read into that and think that which is unfortunate because you know it's definitely not the case <laughs> but but you know what i mean like i feel that somebody would probably you know take offense to it <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. i think so how too f- unfortunately <laughs> and i mean because nowadays, if you were to remake this movie, uh, you would most likely have overtly gay individuals. Yeah. Because I think that's just what people are kind of growing to see. And there's a lot of backlash with the sort of representation of gayness instead of just having it, having a character that is just that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's... And like you said, that would kind of throw off. See, I think the, the strength of the film is that it's undertones that are the case because you're not making any overt statement. It's just the feeling that you derive from just watching the movie, right? Totally, yeah. So it, it's interesting to consider what this movie would do or how it would change nowadays in a remake, and I'm actually sort of surprised no one's ever attempted to remake it. Maybe it's been passed around. But that kind of leads me to this question that I had, too, is I kind of wonder... Well, there's there's two things I kind of want to talk about, but the first thing was kind of talking about it in a modern sense is I wonder what, how, what Hitchcock's opinion would have been on digital cameras and their ability to, like if he could have had the ability to play this whole film out in an 80-minute shot. Because Hitchcock was pushing technology. He was. And that's part of it is like, I mean, this part of this film is him pushing the technology to see how far they could go, trying to get colored cameras, colored, color cameras that were bigger than, like, multiple people combined into a tiny space, getting them to move around, and and then you have, like, you know, Psycho is pushing technology, especially with kind of the overhead shots and whatnot, and, like, he was always kind of... And then, obviously, what we'll talk about uh, in the next couple of episodes, too, is Vertigo and the dolly shot, the dolly zoom shot, which, you know, was revolutionary and basically is its own sort of cliche nowadays. Oh, definitely, yeah. So, it's interesting, yeah, it's... I really am curious. I'd be curious to know 
what he would have thought of digital cameras if he would have supported something like that because it he was so early on that there was no concept of that and I you know you can't make an argument to say that he was a film purist because that's just what they shot on it's that's a really good thing to think about yeah it's 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 funny the only thing I'm thinking is there's this film called side by side, I believe, and yeah. it's narrated by Keanu Reeves, and mm-hmm. it's and it's it's about that. You know, it exactly. kind of talks about you know editors and cinematographers and directors and kind of you know uh, film versus digital. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting to hear what they have to say, but it's also it would be interesting to to to, to hear what like you know Kubrick and um, you know uh, Hitchcock and these you know these greats um, would have thought about digital filmmaking. There has to be. A Kubrick statement about digital because I think he still, I think he'd be open to it. <laughs> I kind of almost think he would be. Yeah, he would have found some way to make digital. Like he would have found the strength of digital and then just utilize the strength of digital. I think. I you know, uh, you know the director Sidney Lumet. He did like um, Dog the Afternoon. Mm-hmm. He did uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I want to say his last film Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I think that was shot on on digital. Was I it? think. I, and you know he's the same. Time era as as Kubrick roughly um, a little bit later, but he was doing films in the seventies and eighties like Kubrick. But uh, it would be because you know he was open to it, obviously. But maybe it was just a budget thing. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, gosh. Um, and you know Lynch. You know he's open. To, he loves. Oh yeah, Lynch does stuff, all sorts so. of stuff. And then Refn is hugely digital for yeah. sure. And Cronenberg is open to it. Inuritu yeah. uh, does digital. The Revenant was shot entirely digitally, so... And Scorsese's been using it. He's been using film and then digital for night scenes. No, that like makes that. sense. So, oh, yeah. why is he doing that? Um, I guess it's just, uh, it's cheaper to, to shoot digitally uh, night sequences so they don't have to buy so many lights or rent so many lights. Oh, <laughs> I see. And it's faster, I guess, too. <laughs> well, and then you... Makes sense. You'd understand, too, that nowadays, even if you shoot on film, it becomes digital anyway. Right. For a multitude of reasons, one being well, every, lot you know, everything is basically projected digitally now, but also because of the advancements in color software and then visual effects and stuff like oh, that. Dude, we can have a whole podcast about this. There's so many awesome things we can talk about. <laughs> no, no, one of the things uh, we have planned is talking about color grading, color correction, and the digital intermediate because the Coen brothers oh brother where art thou was actually the first film to yeah. use yeah. digital color and Deakins was like right with them mm-hmm. you know like in the in the the color correction you know um, facility or whatever you know making sure that the, the, the colors that he envisioned and what the Coen brothers yeah. and him mm-hmm. discussed were, were correct and mm-hmm. I mean it's just epic it's so cool Absolutely. and he was he was ostracized a little bit by some fellow cinematographers for that wasn't he yeah, Where, he was. Yeah. yeah, and he's. I mean, it's so cool because now he's being. You know, um, he he helps out Pixar. You know, like he's credited uh, yeah. Wally and other things. You know, making sure that the so that the lighting is right and stuff. I mean, he's like and Dream really, DreamWorks really too. Cool. I think he did yeah. work on uh, How to Train a Dragon. Oh, okay. Uh, at least the second one. Well, cinematography. I mean, this is a little off subject, but cinematographers have actually found a niche and a growing aspect of their work in video games. A lot of video game designers are consulting cinematographers because a lot of, you know, depending on the game, right, there's a lot of cutscenes and 
lighting is a huge part of the game. It's a huge thing that people talk about when it comes to graphics, lighting, and shadows. So a lot of these game designers are actually consulting with cinematographers now to try and get their games to sort of match movies. Yeah, it's so cool. It's like, you know, the art of light, you know? It, exactly. It, yeah, that's... That's cool. Exactly. So it's it does sadden me a little bit because I would I would really love to hear their opinion on it, especially Kubrick's because he passed away like, right when digital sort of was there. I mean, Old Brother out there I think was two thousand or two thousand two thousand one. I think it might yeah. when it was released at least. Right. Yeah. And then Episode One, Star Wars Episode One, was right around the same right time. I believe, same time. Right? Yeah, I think so. And that was like the first one of the first major motion pictures to be shot digitally. So the advancements were there. I mean, Kubrick just needed to like live another half a decade or so, and we yeah, had at least had some opinions on it, you know. Because I think he, yeah, I think he died two thousand, two thousand one. Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, man. Exactly. Maybe that's why he died. Maybe he's like, ah, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, the other question I had. Sorry, what did you? No, nope, you got it. Uh. Could this movie have been made without the long take? Yes. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I think I, I think it would have been better without the gimmicky long take that's here. And I think the biggest reason is because the long take did not work at all. Like I think it works in Birdman because it's hidden so well, but in this, it's like everyone who watches it knows where that cut is. It's like right behind the back like i i'm pretty i would speculate i'm speculating but i would say audiences knew where each cut was in the movie because it's blatantly obvious Clearly. when they do it yeah and i, I want to cover that more in our review section because i i don't want us to get too opinionated here uh i, I want i really want to come back to that actually that specific point i have strong thoughts um, yeah, same here same here so me three <laughs> so check the notes here well uh, how about this what uh, apparently with this movie they had these large cameras moving around the set um, and they were so huge that they they had to hire crew to like move chairs and tables and actors had to like run out of the way in order to get like some of the shots in oh there. yeah! So and like the sets are like divided. You can each actually see it. Like there's that scene when um, the maid leaves in the uh, goes to the kitchen. You can actually see at the top of the frame the set start splitting so that the camera... oh no shit yeah it's crazy. In there's another Hitchcock film that um, that he did, that it might be North by Northwest actually where that happens as well, which is kind of funny. Yeah, the set was <laughs> interesting. built on rollers so that it could be everything could be moved out of the way for the camera Hitchcock's big thing with this film was that everything had to accommodate the camera that was the the, the key to everything and I think actually uh, in a documentary they even say that uh, the wires were all over the set and the actors were actually stepping over wires and stuff and it was mm -hmm. just the whole thing the whole experience for everyone I think was really negative and especially for the actors because there was so much demand for the camera that they had to bend over backwards in ways that they just weren't necessarily used to you know right it kind of hurt their performance almost a little bit like their concentration 
uh, on you know their emotional states, which is the role of an actor is to do that stuff. There was even this story about one of the crew members had his foot ran over by the dolly, and it actually broke his foot. And the crew member, other crew members around him, had to like gag him to keep him from <laughs> yelling out. <laughs> wow. And supposedly that take is in the film. Wow. Which is kind of a cool that you is... know, little, you know. Wow. Little piece of trivia that I thought was kind of interesting and kind of funny because I think it kind of fits in. Hitchcock's kind of dark, you know, uh, His sense of humor, you know, yeah, yeah. that you know he <laughs> that he, wow. yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. That is crazy <laughs> and makes sense, you know. But yeah, oh man, yeah. So that the whole the whole set was designed like that. And like you said, things were everything had to be movable, everything had to be able to be pulled out of the way and be placed back right away, just. Because and you can see pictures of the camera. The camera is astoundingly big. I mean, a ginormous man. It's like twice the size of a full-grown man. It is it's like a horse. It it's like a big old horse. It is, and set. the guy like kind of rides it like a horse. Yep. It was, it's really just something, you know. So the film, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. The, and that's that's part of the problem of why it would have been better without the long take too, because it was just too much. There was just too much that they had to do to get the long takes to happen. At the it's same just, time, yeah. I'm so glad that the that he attempted it. At, yeah, you know what I yeah. mean. Like, because yeah. I am so glad that he did it, but but it did the film did suffer. You it know, did, yeah, like, <laughs> it did for sure because it it loses sight of the most important part of making a movie, which is make a good movie. Like it, it, it lost itself in the technicality of what what's going on, and forgot to sort of entertain an audience, and or be interesting to an audience, or compelling to an audience, which is right. something that uh, Alfonso Caron does really well, because he still utilizes the long takes, but he does them sparingly, and it doesn't feel cheap when he does it. Like, and and it feels like it's his main goal is to serve the movie and to serve the audience watching the movie and make something compelling. And like when he did, you know, gravity and there's those really long, you know, takes that seem, you know, very seamless and stuff. Uh, I think one of the reasons why that works so well for that is, you know, that it took place in space. It's like the perfect, you yeah, know, exactly. uh, like environment to do something like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's good segue. Let's just move right into children of men. Uh, so, it's made in 2006. The film stars Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Claire Hope Ashite, Michael Caine, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Uh, it was produced by Mark Abraham, Armian Bernstein, Thomas Bliss, Hilary Shore, and Ian Smith. I mean, this film, the, the scope of this film required so many producers. Uh, there was a whole longer list past that, uh, but those seemed to be the main ones. So uh, it was shot by Emmanuel Lubeski, edited by Alex Rodriguez, and the music was composed by John Tavener. Production design was by Jim Clay and Joffrey Kirkland, so that's another interesting pair that got credited for that. And costumes were designed by Janie Tamim. The film is most well-known in, in history for its impressive long takes uh, that were done mostly practically. I think that's the most important part about this is even though they were edited together, the effects and whatnot that happened in the film were practical. 
Um, and interestingly enough, too, it's it was an inter- internationally produced movie. So they actually shot in Argentina, Uruguay, and the UK for approximately $76 million. And actually, according to Wikipedia anyway, which, you know, likely isn't super accurate with budgets, but kind of gives you at least it's a general not, idea. It's not accurate, but it's... It right. is a, yep. Well, they kind of... They don't factor in a lot of... A lot of aspects of the budget but anyway according to wikipedia it actually didn't make its money back it was actually a little bit short so and that's probably likely only the production budget really i mean you know they don't a lot of companies don't list the marketing and and distribution aspects of of cost even the production even that budget is is rough because i don't i think this is like an early estimate but isn't actually the like the final budget uh, oh, like I'm sure it's that not. Wikipedia shows. Um, I'm sure it's not. Yeah, it's just a, a place to get you started and give you a rough idea of what, rough idea. what a movie could cost. You right. Know? So I'm I surprised suppose- that this didn't do as well because um, I remember when this came out and uh, let's see, I was a sophomore in high school and. Uh, everyone was talking about this movie when it came out. So I'm, I'm frankly, I'm surprised it only made seventy million. I thought it cleared a lot more than that. It could have cleared more. I don't know if that is just domestic. That number, if that's just domestic, if that's international or not. Um, Here, I'll look it up. Oh, it's possible that it could have made its money back internationally. Uh, but I thought it was interesting to pair these two movies together because they it's both- it's both it's domestic and foreign. Combined. Oh, interesting. So yeah. yeah, it did. It did struggle to make its money back, but mm-hmm. it didn't struggle to keep Alfonso Cuarón's career skyrocketing. Yeah. So, um, what was I saying? Uh, oh, so both films utilize long takes, but they utilize edited long takes. So the the main trick with Children of Men is that a good chunk, especially uh, in the later part of the movie. It, a good chunk of that is a couple of long takes, which are impressive in and of themselves, but they're edited together to be a bit longer and kind of give you this impression of, you know, the the, the real-time impression. Uh, and I think the reason why the infamous car scene is what it is is because that is actually one of the true long takes in the movie. Which, which no is cuts. insane. Absolutely. I, I when I found out that was not like a green screen, I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> you know what I mean? And, I oh, could totally. have sworn it was just like a big old studio, and um, but it's not. Fuck. He said he would have compromised and done it green screen if they needed to to get that shot. Yeah, and the people around him were like, "No, nah, man, we got to do this like real. It has to be real, you know, to fit the the." the tone of the movie and the reality of the, the characters are in. So they actually, you know, shot and, uh, it's interesting. They had, Oh, I'm actually, I think I, I think I read this. No. Okay. Sorry. I was gonna, anyway, so I'll cut that part out. So <laughs> no, that... uh, you need to keep it. You have to keep <laughs> Me it. Just losing my Don't cut it heart. out. Leave yeah. it in there. Keith fudge. So, the car scene is <laughs> by far the most famous scene 
uh, in the movie for sure. And there's lots of videos on YouTube that show behind the scenes and have production crew talk about how they pulled it off. And they basically invented and created a new camera system to get that shot, uh, which won't be Lubezki's first time basically developing new ways of cinematography. He did it again in Gravity with the light boxes they used to get the correct you know, sunlight on the actors' faces. So when they digitally composited it over, it was, everything was... You know, everything was kind of the same. Um, so he's really a guy who is pushing the boundaries of what cinematography is. And then again, he went on to shoot Birdman and The Revenant. Um, he's shooting, he shot most, if not all, of Terrence Malick's films, too, which is interesting. He's like, oh, I yeah, didn't know since, that. Uh, since The Tree of Life. So Tree of Life to The Wonder. No, I think it was actually before that. Knight of Cups and The New World. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. didn't do Thin Red Line, though, because no. that was pre Malik's right. uh hiatus from Yeah, film. so I think yeah, mm. from the new world on up he's yeah. shot all of his And films. he's shooting the one that's coming out this week and then the one that's planned after that too. So what and one is uh what's coming out this week? It's called Song to Song. Oh yeah. That's the yeah. uh what does that have? Christian Bale and stuff in it? It's got an ensemble cast. Yeah, of Ryan people. Gosling. Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Natalie Portman and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Uh, so basically I'm going to try and kind of describe this uh, car that they had built. Uh, definitely take a look at it online to get a, a better sense of it. So basically they had this car and they had two drivers who actually controlled the car on the very front and the very back. And they had them really low to the ground, basically like on what looked like go-karts so that they could steer the, cause the, in the scene, the car goes forward and then they get the, there's a flaming car that comes down, blocks the way. So the car has to back up and then it has, to, goes, eventually goes forward again. So they had to have two different people controlling the car both ways. And then on top of the car, they had this giant like room basically that could hold four people inside of it. It held the director, it held the cinematographer, the camera operator, and one other individual. I can't remember. Um, but so that they could see the camera and control everything from that from that space. And then basically kept the entire car mobile. You know what I mean? There's no wires that have to be run to the car itself. Because the car actually travels a pretty far distance down the road. And then when it backs up and then leaves, it's kind of covering that same distance. So... They wanted it to be as free and mobile as possible. And then the camera is kind of attached to the quote-unquote roof, and it sits on a, a dual dolly system where it's able to move around sort of like a uh, like the claw game, like the claw in a claw game. Mm-hmm. It's able to move around like that around the car so that they could put it wherever they wanted to, and then it was able to spin a full 360. And the other thing that they did... Because the camera is, you know, it's big. So they designed the seats to be able to be pushed in and out. They kind of tilt in and out a little bit. And the backs can flop back and forth, up and down. So that when the actors aren't on screen, they can get out of the way real quick. Sort of like in rope as well, (laughs) when the actors are told to get the heck out of the way, right? So... Yeah, so you can actually see behind the scenes where, like, Julianne Moore's, you know, the camera kind of pushes back and we're kind of seeing behind, or it's either front, either way, and then she's, like, yanks her back back of her seat down 
to get out of the way and then pops it back up right as the camera's about to be there. So it was this really intricate, intricately choreographed scene uh, just essentially to accommodate the camera again, right, and get this ridiculous <laughs> shot. Yeah. But then they're also filming... So everything in that scene is practical. So the car comes down, the car's on fire, all of the extras they had running out of the woods, and those are all real people. You know, the fire on the hood when the guy throws the Molotov on the hood, that's real. The motorcycle crash is real. And the thing that tripped me out about the motorcycle crash is how they get it to hit the hood of the car. I don't know if that was an accident or not, but that was like, wow. That, that made yeah. it for me. It did. Then that sound that they it added did. to it. Oh, man. It yeah, did, yeah. Like, I think that, that really sold, <laughs> it sold the reality of it for sure. And then, you know, the, and everything else that's happening in the car. And I found, saw this really interesting article online where this guy kind of did a breakdown of the scene and the different shots. And he makes a really compelling point to how technically apt uh, Coron is and how he's so aware of a scene's beats because the scene does have a lot of really obvious beats and that's the thing about uh, about Rope as well is that there's these really really obvious moments that Hitchcock has to point out because of the long takes right so you kind of know like the gun for example when, when uh, Brandon grabs the gun so like there's these really really obvious beats that he employs and then Coron kind of does the same thing because in a long take you know if you're not necessarily zooming in and getting a close up of someone you still have to make it obvious that this is happening and then this is happening and then this is happening because that's how you get the feeling of pacing in a film where it's beats right so he makes a really compelling case for Coron's ability to see what the beats are and breaks down the scene uh, into 17 beats that are really interesting really interesting gosh there's so much to say about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean I cover a pretty decent chunk of technically how it was done and the scene gets cut I mean it's the most famous scene in the movie and the most famous scene to happen I mean if you look up at any list of the 10 greatest long takes in history this is on the list in the top 10 for sure Every single time. And, and you know, there's, it's a good reason for it too. I mean, just the, not, 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 I mean, what they did with the camera is amazing, but also just the logistical nightmare of it all. You know what I mean? Like getting yep. all those extras and there's a lot, there's like 50 extras to all Probably more than that. not get run over by the car that's driving first of all. And, uh, to even after that they they keep driving and they kind of pan back and then they keep going and then they see the cops you know what i mean and it's like this huge long 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 scene that logistically would be so hard to pull off and they do it perfect i'm not maybe not perfect but freaking really good uh, in the movie so it's like man like no you know just the logistics of it are alone are amazing uh and wait honestly it's it's one of those things where if you compare it to rope in rope if you know the story of rope and how they shot it with that giant camera it's it's pretty amazing like the logistics of it people diving out of the way moving chairs and shit but in this movie all the logistics are in camera like you see it like you see all the actors moving around all the extras all the stunt doubles 
moving around in and out of the camera away and in the background they're also doing stuff but just what you see in camera is frankly amazing like how they're able to coordinate all that and do it perfectly i yeah it's it's beautiful it's funny because like keith was mentioning early about you know alfred hitchcock's blocking and how you know how infamous that you know hitchcock's blocking was what's so interesting to me about corone especially in this movie is how he blocks and how he has everything everything positioned perfectly yeah like you know there's that you know the the car scene is the second longest long take in the film the longest is actually at the end you know the when he's going into the building the uprising yeah going to the building and stuff and before that in the streets but that wasn't a real long take right i'm pretty sure that one was edited right that one was edited together yeah but so like but there's like just like parts of that like there's that sequence like pretty much right at the beginning clive owen they they're going down the street right um i think they're pushing uh the 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 lady in the in the wheelchair and there's this Mm -hmm. the camera oh man i can nerd out uh the camera throughout the film does this um and it 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 actually stops focusing on the main characters and it drifts away and it and it and it shows the viewer something about the world that the film is taking a place in and at this particular in that one in this particular long take um it shows a woman holding her dead son and that it, it's in and in in he's positioned her and the the dead son almost exactly like you know michelangelo's uh la pieta and there's that huge um i think it's called guernica i think it might be by picasso mm-hmm. um in the in the art museum with danny houston's character and his son is eating playing the video games or whatever uh there's that painting on the wall and it, it's a, a very it's the same um seeing a woman holding you know like a a dead or hurt child and like his his the way he blocks everything is in all the references he has it's just insane and like the uprising scene i mean even though it was take multiple takes combined to make look like one long shot the again like what jacob was saying the 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 technicality of it dealing with all the extras the beats and just i mean it's just the practical it sets blows yeah. my mind and it took five hours for them to redo that like to to reset so they would do it, it took five hours do it again you know so i think they shot it over you know quite a few days just because of that so in and, any any given day they could only do it twice yeah that's probably pro- yeah, yeah the last that is nuts yeah. Yeah, and like they, you know, the the sequence that they actually used in the film, you know, um, the there's blood on the camera lens. Yeah, like that was actually an accident, and Corone was actually <laughs> saying cut, 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 but because everything was so loud, nobody heard, and they just continued filming, and uh-huh. actually had to talk Corone into using that take because he loved the lighting so much. Mm-hmm. Wow, so it's, just, it's interesting. Yeah, there was a couple of people I think that said. Because he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't going to use it, and a couple of people had to convince him to use it. And it's actually interesting what they do. So you can actually see if you're paying enough attention, you can actually see where they do the edits. Um, going back to the car scene real quick, when he when Clive Owen gets out of the car to confront, uh, oh my god, I'm not forget his name, Chiwetel. Uh, 
the, the camera goes out the window and then shifts to handheld. Well, obviously, the camera is attached to what they call the doggy cam. So it's an edit there, but it's so seamless that they just go from this camera car to handheld and then the, the car just kind of drives away. Mm-hmm. And then in later on, you can see it when... Uh, so like you said, and I think this is why his long takes work, is because he does something, like you said, where well, Clive Owen comes to a corner and then the camera pans away from Clive Owen to show the kind of the wide shot of what's happening on the street. And I believe right there is also a cut, a hidden cut right there. And and by pulling Clive Owen out of the shot, it's it's a little bit easier for them to, to blend that shot together. And then you can have him re-enter the shot and he goes in the bus and whatnot. And then also um, with the blood on the lens, you can see it. It happens right there, before, right before he goes in the building. Blood splashes on the lens. He goes in the building, and there's kind of he's looking up the stairwell. And if you're paying attention, I, I, I actually had to rewind this because I was like, wait, so now there's no blood. The blood fades off of the lens. Mm. So they actually faded those two shots together to get the blood to disappear because that's where the, the next cut was, right, to continue their shooting. So there's little things like that where you can you can kind of notice, yeah, you know, the, I just the brilliance of it is just epic. Because I mean, like, not only is the fact that he allows the camera to drift off every once in a while to focus on the world that the that the the film is taking place in, he's doing that for a very thematic reason uh-huh. because he's following the characters which are normally in the foreground. And in the back, or the, gosh dang it, <laughs> I'm probably getting them reversed. Uh, well, right, you know, right in front of the camera the is normally yeah. the, the... That's the foreground. Yeah, the foreground. foreground. So um, there, you know, you, the, the film is really, a, you know, is focused on what's happening in the foreground. However, the film is also focused, it shifts. Everything that's in the background is important because he makes it so symbolically so, all the symbolism and everything. And then mm-hmm. he shifts it where you fo- he, the camera drifts off or, you know, it, it's never really rack focus. It's normally always the camera just drifts off. Um, and it turn you know, it, the focus is then for a little while focused on the world. And it, it, it's so it's so seamless between the film that you're watching, the foreground of what's happening theme and plot wise versus mm-hmm. the background theme and plot wise. It's and, and then how he utilizes that shift into the long takes is incredible. It's it really gives him more freedom. <laughs> it's just insane. Well, you know, another way to shoot this movie, and I feel like the more typical way to shoot the beginning, at least, to establish the world, is to show your character looking at stuff. And, like, do a shot, reverse shot, with, like, a POV of, like, he's looking at the world. But in this movie, he decides to follow... Clive Owen's character uh, Theo and and then the camera just kind of decides to drift like what you're saying um, almost like a uh, like if you were going on vacation and you were like filming your you know wife or something and then you're like ooh what's this over here like it's almost like this weird curious camera like man who's just like ooh what's this thing you know what I mean it's a so interesting he he actually used the Battle of Algiers as a reference that film um, as a reference to how it was going to be shot, which is a very documentary looking film. You know, one of those the first um, uh, 
films to utilize that 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 kind of feeling um there's a term for it it's escaping my, my cinema verite yeah cinema verite mm. so like that feel um he wanted it to look more like Battle of Edge Years and less of Blade Runner but you can actually still see both references you know in the film well the film is very documentary like there is a lot of handheld and that's the difference uh between it and a lot of other films is that a lot of its long takes are handheld yeah mm-hmm. and uh which also adds to his ability to hide things because handheld cameras make seamless editing you know magnitudes harder than just if it's a stable camera or if it moves yeah. in a way that's very very you know up down left right and that helps add to that feeling but it's also you can easily tell that it's very documentary i mean from the first the first shot which i love love love, love that first shot it reminds me so much of uh Touch of Evil's first shot, uh, and I think that it perfectly describes what a long take should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for that first shot, it's like you said, it's handheld. It follows him out of the cafe, down the street. He's kind of doing something mundane, he's putting some alcohol in his coffee. Kind of pans around, and then right when it does, boom! It just the the cafe blows up, and the camera just leaves him and just goes into the dust. And that is such a documentary thing to do because it's mm-hmm. like, what's the most more interesting thing? Well. One, your character, right? Your subject. So the camera's always going to be on your subject. You're not going to do usual shots like framing a wide shot to see what the where you're at and get a sense of space. You're just really interested in that character. So the majority of what you shoot is going to be that character. But if something big happens and your character is kind of semi-involved, but you know, he's, it's like he was there, but he wasn't directly involved, of course you're going to film the thing that's happened because you're going to want to stuff that into your story somehow, right? Yeah. So the camera just does that. It just says, screw you, man. Let's go see. And then I think it's like a like a screaming woman or a woman yeah, who's like kind a of girl or something. Like holding walking her, out yeah. of the dust. Yeah. 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 And she's like, like holding an arm or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Was it her arm? Interesting. I, I don't know if it's her arm or someone's arm. I, I think. I'm pretty sure it's an arm that she's yeah, holding. It's just an arm. And she's like screaming I thought it was her arm, but I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of thought it was like maybe her arm too. I, I don't know. It's just a, a great image though, which I'm sure is referenced to something. I, I'm sure. Like there's, you know, Banksy has, you know, he his, 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 uh, Art is in the film too. No, oh, like, like the stuff that they thought about. You know, okay. There's this famous building in London called the Shard, and it wasn't actually made until 2009. And this film was made in 2006. Yet it's in the film. They digitally had they, oh, they had the plans and they, they had, had it. They, they were constructing knew. it. Oh, right. That's funny. And they put it in the film three years before that. The the building was actually there. And, like, you know, uh, Clive Owen is, you know, his character, Theo, is, is wearing a London 2012 Olympics yeah, that's true. t-shirt <laughs> six years before London actually, you know. Yeah. Like, the, 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 what they, they, they thought about everything. The detail is just incredible. I, I loved how, when I was watching this movie, how I felt like this is actually what 2027 is going to look like technologically. I mean, it's not going to be like post-apocalyptic like this but as soon as he walks outside i was like that's our future a lot of billboards all over the place you know what i mean and uh video and everything's gonna be like exactly the way it was there's just gonna be a lot more screens around and i felt like they really captured what i realistically i could i could see that being what the future is in in 2027 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, because, like, you know, like, A Clockwork Orange was supposed to take place in 1995, you know, and it was made in the, you know, 1972, and it, it doesn't look anything really like what 1995 <laughs> was, right. but I feel that they did a really good job with this one, you know, and then same with Blade Runner, you know, it was supposed to take place, you know, in the future, but, it, you know, it's not going to look like uh, what Blade Runner, you know, the, the original one right was gonna look like but but this film however i think they really did an exceptional job at making it uh you know look very you know realistic a reasonable future (laughs) i think because the technology was more subtle like it was things that you can relate to but it just like the cars for example were european style cars they're sort of smaller and Basically, what they did was they kind of made everything a little more sleek, mm-hmm. and then they kind of dirtied it up because the world is really dirty, right? And then occasionally, when you see some screens like the TV, uh, when there's that powwow basically in the middle of the movie, the TV kind of looks like it doesn't really have a it. it it's not a normal TV, right? It's a normal enough, but it's, it doesn't have like the back like a TV would have and everything like that. So it's all these. The technology is so in the background that you can get a sense of it. But it's not overwhelming you with how sci-fi it is. Yeah, yeah it's it not perfect. like showy. It's not like, hey, look no. at look at the future. This is what the future is, which a lot of movies do. You know what I mean? Like Mission Impossible's like, what's the latest tech? Let's uh, let's get a spider iPad thing going on where you can control this little spider with a camera on it, or like a fly or something. But this movie was like. But you're right. Put it in the background, and I feel like a lot of movies you could so easily highlight the technology. And honestly, I feel like it hurts the art of the movie. It might be cool to the viewers when they see it, and it might sell more tickets. But as far as like the art of the film, I, I don't know. I feel like doing something like this is way more interesting, and and having it in the background is is uh, better. And it always dates the film. You know, you look at those old Bond movies and stuff, and, like, the gadgets that they come up with are so now corny, or they just, they're not believable. But something like Children of Men is going to age, but it's going to, it's going to age well. It's not going to be dated. And I think that's what, maybe why also the original Blade Runner is still so relevant, and it doesn't seem so like corny now even even though the year is not going to be what it looks like it's still believable um but yet if you look at you know logan's run or something you're like yeah no (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that informs that too is that the practicality of it all allows a film to age better you know like i think that's why 2001 is such a special movie because besides the space stuff I mean, the space stuff is, hasn't aged super well, even though it was all done in camera. But the stuff inside the spaceships, I mean, you can't you can't beat that. You know what I mean? When the when the stewardess is walking around the circle and becomes upside down and then walks up the wall and mm-hmm. the guy comes down the ladder on one way while the guy's sitting on like on the wall on the far end eating his food. Like there's just it's this technological masterpiece. And it was all done practically, which is why those scenes still work. And, like, he, he invented Skype before there was Skype, except the, yep. the machine just looks dated, but the idea, but the idea is, there, st- yeah. is still it's very modern. <laughs> yep. yep. Oh, I want to talk about that first shot, uh, though, just because uh, I just want to say, like, 
that shot and then the touch of evil shot are to me what a long take should be what what is the touch of evil shot so in the beginning of of touch of evil um it starts with an individual putting a bomb in the back of a car and then you follow the car as it does a two-minute drive down the street and I believe it's the is it the main character is actually in the car. I, I can't remember exactly, but essentially you know that there's a bomb in the back of the car, so you're kind of like waiting for this car to blow up, right? But it mm-hmm. takes two and a half minutes of this single crane shot just tracking down the street, and you're following. You know, there's there's like a carnival kind of going on. There's like popcorn being sold. There's all these stores open. There's all these people out and about so you're kind of like okay so is someone going to die now is someone going to die now how many mm. people are going to die like ah you know someone's what's going to happen here and Charlton Hess is like talking to his to that lady yeah and, they're kind of yeah, having like, a, like just a conversation about themselves and eventually the car does blow up which is the the exciting incident for the movie and that's what I'm saying about a long take is that if you're going to have a long take Something needs to blow up at the end. And I'm not talking about literally. I'm not talking about literally. I'm talking about if we're going to follow something for X minutes or whatever, at the very end of that, there's got to be something that sets that, that just explodes. And whether or not that's an explosion of drama or literal explosion right. or something, but it's at the very end of that, it's got to be like, you know, because the whole point is that you're building up to something usually, you know. What I mean, like, I'm sure in Victoria, it's probably, when we talk about it, it's going to be the same way. Where it's sort of it's a whole long take, so it's a little bit different. But there's got to be these sequences where you know trouble is going to be there, and you're waiting for the trouble to come, and the trouble has to come, and it's got to be big at the very end of that. It's yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, one of my favorite film directors, um, I'm probably butchering his last name, but. I believe it's Michael Haneke. He, you know, he's done the White Ribbon, the Piano Teacher, and stuff. Um, one, one of my favorite films he's done is called Funny Games. He actually did his own movie twice. Um, but there's a scene towards the end of that film where he leaves the camera running, and it's I want to say it's like a seven minute scene, uh, in no cuts, um, and most of it is static. And it's this woman's family has all been killed, and. Uh, the TV's on, and it's like NASCAR in the remake, uh, his, his own remake. Um, and Naomi Watts is like tall, tied up, and it gets her, it just shows her like struggling and, you know, sobbing because her family's just been killed, right? Um, and then she gets out of her, you know, restraints, and it, it, but it's, it's a slow process. But by the end of that, though, there isn't any really explosion it's it's just it's just the director forcing the viewer to to witness the violence that has just happened to this woman so it's interesting how it's almost the opposite of a build-up it's almost like forcing you to just watch but that's a different type of long take um so Hmm. it's it's interesting how there are different types but i just wanted to bring that up just as a as a as a little bit of a counterpoint just because you're completely right and I think that that long takes can be can come off as just very showy um and, and gimmicky it's like a, we were, it's a pit hole mm-hmm. or a hole that like 
film school people will fall into. Right. Like, oh yeah, the long take's gonna be sick. But you don't know why you're doing a long take, you're just doing it, like you said, I think you have to have a point. And I don't know if it's necessarily, it has to be thematic, or it could be character-based, it could be, you know, um, symbolic, it could be a a number of things, but I think it has to be an organic um, reason, and it it can't be just for show. I mean, even the Copacabana scene in Goodfellas is a little showy. At the same time, it's also showing the mob's life and how that whole world revolves in especially in the eyes of his date um who was new to that lifestyle so it kind of shows the you know the 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 new life of you know what she's getting into um so there is you know and and that's so subtle but it Mm -hmm. has that and the viewer subconsciously you know um but it's showy and that's the point because it's supposed to inform him trying to be showy right so it's like that's the point so like in Mm -hmm. But you know, like there, there are there are scenes where I, can't, I couldn't even give you a good example, but where the long take, and I think a lot of it is actually maybe student films, um, where or maybe first films, but uh, where the long take is there just because they wanted to have a long take. And I know in my first couple short films, I did that too, and I didn't realize the actual, um, you know, I hadn't really thought it out and 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 wanted and used the long. Just wanted take to, as, to as, try as a tool. it. Yeah. Right, right. So I kind of pulled, you know, rope. <laughs> yeah. See, well, I think ultimately it, there's each rule that, even you know, even if we say like, oh, you have to do something with a long take, really you have to do something with every shot. You know what I mean? Every shot needs to be important, including right. especially long takes. You know, otherwise they'll feel dry. But there's exceptions to every rule uh, in, in yeah. when you're working with art. So... You know, even if that I'm not sure what Tarantino shot that is, but he's kind of known for his um, film studenty style of shooting. You know what I mean? Like his uh, uh, indie style shooting, at least early on in his in his earlier movies. So especially having a shot, you can kind of feel that a little bit more. Yeah, having a showy shot like that, I feel like is showing off his style, and it's like a voice almost. but you know there's exceptions to everything when we're working with art so that's what's kind of cool about it is like if we have a long take that doesn't actually do anything for anyone it could still work <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. so yeah. that's the weird thing about it it's yeah it's funny cuz like you know tarantino uses showy you know camera movement and long takes and stuff and he normally has like music going right Scorsese kind of does the same thing but he mixes it with kind of fancy editing Michael Haneke is the opposite he hardly uses any score and then you know so it's it's funny how mm-hmm. like you said yeah you know that it, it each person has their own voice and style and you know personality um I think one another director that has his own kind of style and personality is Paul Thomas Anderson because uh, he Magnolia yeah okay he utilizes like really 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 slow at least later on really slow like character based long takes uh and it's fascinating it's very interesting his most popular or famous long take is magnolia the very beginning of magnolia which rightfully so it's a pretty intense intense long take and it it does the things that 
you talked about where there's this different types of long takes, right? And this, this type of long take is to give you insight into the insanely busy world of the behind the scenes and showing you all the different interconnected ways that all these characters who like may not know each other, but still pass each other in the hallway, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think his actually his more interesting long takes are the static ones. Well, static with uh track in, yeah, those, uh, the really small, like, zoom in, on, like, dolly in. Kind of a Ken Burnsy type thing yeah. in Inherent Vice. And oh. what he does in Inherent Vice is any time that the um, doc is, Joaquin Phoenix is interviewing someone or talking to someone, the camera is from one position, and it slowly, slowly pushes in on the person he's interviewing. So it'll start sort of wide in kind of a wider two shot. So it'll show both of them kind of probably cut them off sort of around the knees. It sort of depends on the shot. And then they're doing this really long just dialogue sequence, mm-hmm. a couple minutes long. And then you'll notice if you're paying attention that the camera just starts to push in and push in and push in. And it's really slow. It's really deliberate. But then you notice that it's always focused on the person that Joaquin Phoenix is talking to. And it does this for every single time. <laughs> It's, interesting. And it's a really interesting way to to pull you into Doc's perspective while also having you hone in on the nuances of the person he's... Because it's a mystery film, right? So he's trying to figure out the mystery of all this crap, this really complex, convoluted mystery that's happening. And it's a way to get you to hone in and pay attention to the person he's talking to. And they're so much more subtle, that's why I don't think they get the acclaim that the Magnolia shot does because it's just a ridiculous shot. And then Boogie Nights as well. Boogie Nights opening shot is pretty ludicrous. And yeah. a whole lot of moving parts to it. Yeah, it's but really fast paced. Sure. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. And then Boogie Nights also starts with the kind of the, the sweeping side motion, which is kind of a statement on the 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 70s feel that he wants to get and the kind of weirdness of the whole thing. So that's really interesting. Uh, there's an interesting video online as well about Paul Thomas Anderson's long shots, long takes, and how what they do and his his blocking. Um, there will be blood has one, an interesting one where mm-hmm. it's basically a zoom in on three guys at a table, and that one's been analyzed with eye movement too to see where your eye is drawn and how he keeps your eye going. Oh Punch yeah, I love. saw that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, Punch Drunk Love has an interesting long take where uh, Adam Sandler walks in the middle of the kitchen and his sisters kind of all come out from the different doorways and he's kind of pulled one way and another and spins around and just gets confusion, which is... Mm -hmm. So this is why PTA is kind of revered as he is because it's like his long takes inform... And that's another. This is this is one of those type of long takes that are not the explosion at the end, right? It's the type of long take that is informative to get you to feel a certain way about the character at the time. Yeah, that's exactly what Michael Haneke does. Exactly. It's the same type. Yeah, it's by the end of a scene, subconsciously, you may or may not realize that the camera's in a different place than it was before because it's so slow, mm-hmm. it's so deliberate. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's really cool, and that's why I, I I say the explosion at the end is what I think a long take should be because that's what I think is a good starting point for a long take. The other long takes we're talking about with Paul Thomas Anderson, Michael Haneke, is that those are long takes done by filmmakers who know what they're doing. Right. That's the big difference. There is that <laughs> the the reason, and I'm not saying that film school. 
people who are first time movie makers, stuff like that, or not, don't know what they're doing. But we're talking about people who are considered masters of their craft, right? I mean, it's a different level, and they understand that what they're doing has to inform the emotion that you need to feel, but mm-hmm. it also informs the character on the screen that you're looking at. Like you said, with the with her struggling to get out of her bonds and stuff, like that's a big, important scene that makes sense to do in a long take, even though it's not going to necessarily end with, you know, the house exploding while she's still trying to get out of her bond or something. Right. Or something ridiculous like that. But, but you have uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's, like, a guy who has done so many long takes. You know what I mean? And they started out really fluid, really energetic, and now they've kind of toned back a little bit and got re- they they get really slow now. Almost and matured, I feel like they've in a sense. Yeah, they've kind of matured cuz like the first ones were very like young, youthful almost, like they uh were all over the place, not in a bad way, but in you know, they were just energetic. But now it's Which, like this slow old man, like molasses kind of, you know what I mean? Like, like leaking out sort of a thing. It's kind of cool because, like, I guess I don't know. It's hard to, for me, it's hard to tell if it's because he's matured as a filmmaker or if it's because his films are more mature or if it's just plain, you know, maybe the next one he's going to do. Well, I know the next one he's going to do, I guess, has Daniel Day Lewis in it and it's about 19, takes place in the 1950s fashion world. Oh, so I don't know if it's cool. going to be something that's going to be fast-paced or not. Because, like, what if he pulls that off, but it's like, you know, Boogie Nights again, you know, and it's mm-hmm. full of energy or something. I, I'm kind right, of right. curious. Uh, yeah, I don't know I, if... I, I agree with you. I don't think filmmakers are like, oh, I'm more mature now because I can do, like, a slow thing. You know what I mean? Because, like, you see Spielberg's career, and it's, like, escapist <laughs> films, right? Like right. Jaws and Jurassic Park. And then same year Jurassic Park comes out suddenly he's starting to do these humanist films like Schindler's List and um you know he just did uh Lincoln and stuff so he's kind of like saving Private Ryan you know what I mean so he kind of jumps back and forth but then he goes back and does uh oh shit I can't remember what 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 is the oh the BFG which is an escapist uh movie you know what I mean so I think directors can obviously jump back and forth and ultimately it's about serving the movie and if the movie calls for a really long take then do it you know what i mean just freaking go for it but it's it's i think the difference is is that these filmmakers we're talking about know when the long take needs to be done i mean i think i think um true detective again is one of those examples where fukunaga knew that he wanted to do a long take and it was just a matter of what was the right time, and that was the right time to do it. You know, when it when it pops up. And his uh, Beasts of No Nation is like that too. There, you know, he's got some cool long takes in that. Um, that seems so organic within that film that, I mean, it it just works. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> yeah. that's the big difference. There's something really interesting about long takes that that don't happen uh with ed- when you, when you're editing something together you know as opposed to like why shoot it long and wh- or why edit and when you're shooting something long y- it lingers on it right but then when you're cutting something when that cut happens your eye has to like readjust and like find find out where you are you know what i mean so it, it, like when you cut suddenly you're like i has to adjust where you're looking and you your brain has to like calculate what this new shot is and what is 
going on with the background and the foreground and it's hard to like figure out where exactly you're supposed to look at first but then you figure it out um and you see it with a lot of new editors um who are you know cutting something for the first time or or, uh who don't have a ton of experience they'll cut things really really fast and it won't make any it'll move so quickly because in their brain it's like okay this is all you need because i've been looking at this forever and they don't amount for that time to where you need your brain needs to like adjust for the new shot that's in there uh and there's something about long takes i mean obviously with long take that's all gone so there needs to be some sort of uh shift where your brain has to recalculate what's going on in order to, you know, uh, keep that energy that you would get for uh, from editing. Or even if it's not energy, it could be a character thing. Or, frankly, it could probably even be nothing. It could, it could be nothing, you know? Uh, like, I'm thinking of Tarantino's first shot of Hateful Eight, uh, the opening shot of The Angel, where it's just like this, like... <laughs> Uh, he's like zooming out on this angel thing and uh, i don't know i just i was like we got you gotta cut that man <laughs> but uh you're it's, talking about it being gratuitous it's just times? well in that movie specifically the first shot it's just like all i'm thinking as i'm watching it is this guy really likes 70 millimeter film and he's just like, oh, that's a cool angel shot. Let's shoot this in 70 millimeter. And, uh, oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, you Wait, know, oh, that's yeah. a really good shot. You know well, what I for mean? Me, like, well, for me, when I was watching it, again, I'm kind of, I'm going to be probably the minority here. But, like, because I grew up with all the, the older films, I grew up a lot with, the, like, the older, you know, 1960s spaghetti westerns. And they do shots like that. And I think that's also in the Italian tradition. I think it's like, you know, neoclassical Italian films um, like uh, uh, Michelangelo Antonini and stuff. They have these long... Actually, he's not even so much uh, a good example, but um, these long takes that you just see like a wagon, right? And a family or a couple writers, and they're just going across the screen across a sunset and the camera is just sitting there watching it for like three minutes or two minutes and it's boring but it it allows it it allows the audience to get into a a pace like what keith was Mm -hmm. saying earlier Mm -hmm. and it and it's 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 somehow i don't know yeah at the same time i know what you mean about tarantino is because part of it is he's so known for loving all sorts of different types of movies that almost everything he does can be read as something like, oh, he's just having a fucking boner, you know, right. and he's he wants, you know, he, he he just, he's putting it on there because, you know, he's gonna, you know, get off on it or he gets off on it. But I think... Which he probably does, let's, for the record. Well, yeah, which is true, <laughs> which is true. But the, but the reason why it's in his head is that there is a history behind it. Right. Um, it's like an homage sort of a right. thing. Yeah. But like, you know, a Quaron, like for Children of Men, um, like you said, like, you know, it, I, what I noticed was after his long takes or to- takes that were just longer, you know, even if they were a minute and a half or whatever, which is, you know, more than most films, um, he would focus on uh, character. Um, 
mainly so like he, he you know there's a long take but then he cuts to you know theo's face and it immediately allows the viewer to do like oh that you know they know that the take has ended but but they don't really it's only subconscious because they're still immediately invested in the character and what he's going to do right 100 um, right. agree and that's where rope didn't work for me and part of the reason why i think it didn't work was because like you said, where Children of Men focuses on character, Rope was trying to be a play, so there was no nuance to character. It was just, we need each character to be this. Because like when you're on stage, you don't get the intimacy with the person, right? You need them to emote. You need them to be more expressive than they usually would be and more mm-hmm. specific to the type of character that they are. Whereas in a movie, you can get... I mean, a close-up and get really intimate with someone uh, on the screen and get a better sense of their nuance of who they are. And Rope tried to be the play. And that was one thing I noticed in Rope 2 that I didn't bring up before was that there's no close-ups besides the gun. Mm -hmm. So even when the climax is... Because, you know, it's a classically structured film. But even when the climax is there, it doesn't push in close to anyone specific. It's still got that play feeling, and it feels kind of almost melodramatic because they're trying to play up these character archetypes, right? And and that's why it just doesn't really work as well as Children of Men does because Children of Men, at the end of the day, is a character-driven film. It's It just happens to be sci-fi and in the future, but it's still about the characters and their struggle, right? Yeah, so I, I, I feel like Children of Men really like the filmmakers all of them were serving the story and they were serving the movie but i didn't i i didn't feel like hitchcock and his crew and and the actors were serving the movie it seemed like they were obsessed with the idea of shooting it in long takes as opposed to making something that is worth while you know what i mean and one thing they do in rope is they also like they cheat the the camera or uh, I, I'm not sure what the play term is for this, but it's where like an actor like cheats to the audience. They like turn their body a little bit yeah. so you can like see, and they do that in rope. Like, you know what I mean? Like they do that classic like play thing where they open themselves up to the audience. Yeah. yeah they like turn their body. So even like normally when you're standing, you know, in front of someone, you're like pretty locked on you know tr- traditionally you know what i mean that's not always the case when people talk but uh in this movie it, they you know they just cheat and it just feels so staged you know what i mean because of that exactly and it's it's a kind of a sitcom thing to do it's a it's a thing you it's do very when sitcom. you're on set yeah because it's like a multi-cam set, sitcom yeah, yeah exactly because the set has essentially three walls and the camera is the fourth wall so the characters have to turn themselves in ways that are not Normal, you know. Yeah. Whereas in a movie, the camera can be wherever it wants, and the actor faces the camera, facing mm-hmm. the direction, yada yada yada, stuff like that. Yeah, and that's yeah. There's there is a fourth wall in rope, like you, d- yep. you d- and you don't see it. You know what I mean? Yep. And that's it, it's kind of a thing. Well, he gets away, gets further away from it later on, but he's such a studio guy. Hitchcock is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a thing that just happens in his movies because he chooses to yeah. always want to shoot on studios. So. Yeah. Rear window but, is, is very clear, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. Uh, so I kind of want to open it up 
now we've reached a point where we just do some more opinionated reviews. I think this episode we kind of went that way a little bit, especially like with rope. But I kind of want us to be more a little more specific on what we thought about things. Uh, let's let's just start with rope because I think it's an interesting as as much as we are saying that things didn't work and that it it just wasn't you know essentially a failed experiment <laughs> i would still rate it really highly i saw that you rated it five stars i box. absolutely loved it yeah <laughs> it was still it's this weird movie that you kind of critique a lot but it's like it it's still good and i i think for anyone who oh, wants to man. make movies you kind of have to watch it I think that's why we all liked it because yeah. we're all filmmakers here and we we both I think recognize we all, all three of us recognize that it took major guts to do what he did or to try and do what he did and you know t- for me I love to try and push the art form so he pushed the art form it and it yeah. wasn't successful but thank god he did it because if he hadn't have done it it could have been somebody else that tried um and it could have been even more disaster it could have been yep. better but it it it's it's good that he did, or it could have been years later that somebody tried it and it, and we would be behind, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I I actually I did enjoy the film and I, I really enjoyed the dark comedy. I wasn't you know I wasn't expecting that. Um, I wasn't expecting me, that. Yeah, me so neither. Like, I, I yeah. really enjoyed that part of it for sure. <laughs> yeah, I found it enjoyable for sure. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say I loved the double entendres first off and I you know I love the fact that it was all one take and not just um, from the filmmaking standpoint but also I just enjoyed watching it like a play you know what I mean like I enjoyed the aspect of it and then what worked well for me and you could only do this with this movie where it everything is made to seem like it's one take but the one cut in the movie like the one apparent cut is a cut where Jimmy Stewart is eyeing uh, the guy. I can't remember what Brandon. his name. Uh, yeah, is that the pianist? Oh, Philip. Oh, Philip. Yeah. Um, so the one cut is where Jimmy Stewart is eyeing Philip because Philip is freaking out about how the what's the main character's name? Brandon. How Brent? Uh, he's freaking out about Brandon talking about how he killed a chicken, and just the way. Jimmy Stewart looks at the pianist guy. It is just perfect. Like he's like he's found something out and he's like, oh, something's up. Something is going on. And it just holds on him. And the fact that that's the only cut is kind of like this weird turning point in the movie for me. And to me, that just like made the movie. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, totally. You know what I mean? Because it's like totally. he's intentionally breaking the uh, the 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 gimmick in order to create this moment and for me it was like this is freaking awesome you know because it because it, it totally it breaks the gimmick and he uses it in a way to inform the audience about what Jimmy Stewart is feeling and it's done so so great because of the gimmick because of the gimmick of the one shot I definitely agree and it is interesting how long that shot lingers on him and lets him just take in, you know, because you can hear it. It's all happening off screen. The Him having kind of his freak out and whatnot. You know, you see him stand up, but then it does cut 
to James Stewart and you hear it all and then but I thought that too that that cut right there tells you everything you want to know about Hitchcock and how Hitchcock knew what the hell he was doing yeah because why else would you cut there unless you were trying to emphasize James Stewart as figuring out that there's something wrong and taking it all in and and being the guy who he becomes later who you know, eventually sees the body in the, the, whatever the fuck that was, the cabinet or the chest. It was a chest. Yeah. It was a yeah. Uh, but that that right there is like, you know, Hitchcock is a master. At he's, what yeah. he's doing, yeah, for sure. And it actually kind of reminds me of the what is it, seventeen long, seventeen minute long shot in um, Hunger by Steve McQueen, where it's. Uh, two shot from afar of Michael Fassbender talking to um, oh I can't remember the guy's name anyway Michael Fassbender is a prisoner he's talking to the priest and it's a 17 minute long static shot of them talking hmm. and then at the very end it breaks the gimmick and cuts in when the, when the conversation kind of gets a little more like personal and that's kind of what I what I kind of thought of with that that like you said that one cut that you know is a cut like you know everything else is a cut when they push into the back you know that's a cut, but yeah. that's the only one besides the one right at the intro that apparently some people don't even count, right? So uh, that's the one cut that I was like, "What? Wait, they cut right there? Holy crap!" Like, like I, that's how I expected rope to actually be. I actually thought it was gonna be—I don't know why I thought that, but I thought it was gonna have like a ten-minute span and then an obvious cut, you know, like they did at that point—that type of cut, you know, not a not a pan into the back type of thing, right? Um, so it was interesting to see that that was the only one. Yeah. This is probably a little bit of a stretch, but the title Rope is interesting, too. And, like, I kind of imagine, you know, Hitchcock, he was such a character, you know, going to, you know, a shop or a store, right? And he's, you know, unspooling, I think that's the word, you know, unspooling the rope. And then he cuts it. And then he's ready to tie the noose around the viewers, right? Like he's ready, <laughs> yeah. he's ready to uh-huh. to 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 you know shock us into what what what's next to drive the story forward. You know, I don't know. That's what I imagine. That's a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, because it's based off the play. But I think right uh, maybe the reason why they kept the title is for for something like that. You know, because he at this point he's kind of known for his like murdery type movies you know his like suspenseful like you know a lot of death going on um so having a title like rope is kind of evocative for a a movie of his you know what i mean because it's so like telling of what it is but also like the idea of a rope being this really long thing without a cut in it that's kind of what the movie is it's all like roped together in a way so it kind of is a double entendre in itself uh yeah that's kind of what i meant you know like because i i I think it's 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 hitch that's hitchcock's humor he he was kind of a wit and i i I think that i think that is something to i think there is something to it you know (laughs) right a little bit at least (laughs) no i think you're right did uh hey quick question did pillsbury doughboy was that a thing when did that come out because, because maybe I have a theory. 
Maybe that's why he got rid of his belly button. It's because he's tired of people oh, poking so him. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm so sick of this. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> you should post that to the internet. Just throw that out there. Uh, yeah. See if that's a thing. I'll, I'll send it to the film registry. They'll love it. On Letterboxd, I rated this movie four out of five. It would have been a five out of five, most likely, but I just could not stand what he decided to do for the cuts for the film to keep the the facade of the continuous shot going. I think an interesting example of the whole like messing up uh, thing, like when directors fuck up and then essentially they come out better at the other end, and my favorite example of one of my favorite movies of all time is Apocalypse Now. Because Apocalypse Now was a complete disaster from beginning to end, and he was millions of dollars over budget. You know, Marlon Brando completely screwed up his part, but it still ended up did, really good. Didn't, didn't he, he didn't even read the script, right? He, didn't read he just showed script. up on set, like, drunk. And fat. And fat. He, he was supposed and to lose fat. weight. He was, like, 40 pounds overweight and showed up. He and didn't give a fuck. had... No idea anything about the movie. And then Martin Sheen had a, uh, mental issues, and that's actually the film. The scene where he has an actual mental breakdown and punches a mirror is real. Wow. That's not acting. I didn't know and that. And um, the, the whole production was just plagued. I mean, a storm, a hurricane completely destroyed one of the sets, so they had to spend months rebuilding the set. And it's just this film that was just a, I mean... Coppola almost killed himself over making that movie. He was to the point where he almost shot himself in the fucking head. And it still is like came out as like a masterpiece in war cinema and just in cinema in general. I think James Cameron said that he thought that he people liked his directing style because of not because of his talent, but because of the mistakes that he's made. So like he he theorizes that his voice his like directorial voice comes from his mistakes not his skills so like the things he like leaves out that should be in a movie that's where like his voice comes from and he thinks all directors are like that all uh authorial directors that is all right well this takes us to the end of the show uh if you have any questions suggestions or opinions go ahead and send an email to btvpodcast at gmail.com uh you have any suggestions for movies you'd like to hear us talk about or double features you think would be interesting, we'd love to hear it. Uh, next week we'll be covering Gene Negolesco's, I think I'm saying that right, Negolesco's How to Marry a Millionaire and Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, focusing on aspect ratios and answering the question of what the hell that black bar is. Thanks for listening and happy to you. Bye. See you guys.